Man, I'm so stoked to be here. Um, I come to the islands pretty often because I have family here. But um, I have to let you know before I start, just to let you know that I actually love Harbor Church. I really do. Um, I love you guys. And I've been attending this church for a long, long time. In fact, um, this church is probably by far, by far, the church that I've been to most outside of our church. And the reason is, yeah, I have family here, but I love your church. In fact, I was on a sabbatical in 2018, and I was here for about a month, and, and people were asking me to speak at different places. I said, I don't want to speak. I don't want to preach. I want to be a part of a local church. And I came here, and I served. We were in the elementary school, and I was, like, doing the chair duty. Most of you guys weren't there because you guys are eating at the lawn. But, you know, I was stacking chairs. I was that guy. And you might have noticed my family. We always sit in the front row, and we just sing real loud, and we take notes of the pastor, and we say amen obnoxiously. That's who we are, and I love doing that for this church, and I love you guys. But I also love your pastor. Uh, he's one of my best friends in life. Um, and it's one of those things, you know. A prophet uh, has no honor, you know, in his home, it says. And uh, I know that you love your pastor deeply. But in some ways, um, you would actually love him more if he wasn't here. You would miss him. And in fact, I've, I've known many pastors, hundreds of pastors, maybe even thousands of pastors. There are very few like your pastor, Pastor Matt Dirks, and um, one who is godly, really humble. By the way, if you hear Matt always talking to you and say, you're better than me at this, uh, that's deep humility. You know, not very many pastors say that to one another. And I've heard that from his mouth over and over again. It's just his heart bleeding. But more than anything else, apart from his preaching gifts, his intellect, his knowledge, my favorite thing is that he could be called to very many different places, but he refuses to be anywhere else but here. He loves you. He loves you deeply. Yeah, that's, that's worthy of just saying thank you. Yeah, and I see about 40% of you clapping. And so I hope that the rest of you <laughs> are, are either really introverted and quiet or, or you're outside of the church. God forbid that you're a member of this church or we have a talk right after this church, all right? All right, so hey, hey so let me start by just um, joining this vision series, this series called Seek. And last week, we talked about refuge. I love the fact that this church is a place of refuge. If you need refuge, that this place is here. You get to rest. I, I met somebody here this morning, first time here. Um, and you are welcome here. You are here to be restored, to be encouraged, and to rest. But I love that the charge for us, the rest of us, is that we are to create a place of refuge for people. And Maui is one of those, but also on the island of Oahu, there's, there's a desperate need for a church like yours to actually become a refuge for those who are seeking it. And today, I have the great privilege of speaking about the second value, the second core value of your church, which is redemption, redemption which is uh, the process of you becoming made new, for you to be made new. And I, I, I saw this illustration by one of my students. He, he did it. I thought it was brilliant, so I'm going to use it, if you don't mind. Um, so um, who knows what this is? You guys know what this is? Yes? Almost. It's not cabbage. It's what? Napa cabbage. It's Napa cabbage. You know, this is Napa cabbage. Now, this is like really nothing, and in fact, you, many of you don't, wouldn't even have uh, uh, something like this in your fridge unless you need it. But you know what? If you put this in a brine, and if you actually rest it, and you put some spices and some, and some shrimp, uh, salted shrimp, and you put some fish sauce and other good ingredients, you become transformed, 
and you become one of these. Now, you know what this is? Yeah, this is Napa cabbage, but it's transformed. It's completely different. And once you become this, you, be, you get a new identity. It's called kimchi. The glorious kimchi. Yeah, listen, I can't do this at my church because my church don't like kimchi like here. It, like, you know, you come to the island, kimchi's everywhere, right? And so this is, you become a glorious transformed version of what was in the past. And like it, Christianity is very similar. You see, Christianity is you start religious. You think it's all about following rules, and then you get brinded and immersed in this glorious brine of God's grace. By the way, that is the main ingredient of it, that you are immersed and sealed in God's grace, and eventually you'll turn into a glorious kimchi or a Christian. In fact, if you come to our church in the lobby, we have a big lobby, and up there we have this huge structure hanging in the middle of our lobby, and it says this, it says, go make disciples. The first thing you are, to make, you are to do in becoming a disciple, it says right there, you see it? Enjoy grace, enjoy grace. And so much of Christianity is missed in this understanding that the transformative power of you becoming a Christian from a religious person is grace, to enjoy grace. You see, redeemed people love the Redeemer and enjoy the Redeemer. That's how you become a Christian. But I didn't know this early on when I said yes to Jesus. When I was about 22 years old, when I was at UCLA, it's the first time that I've ever heard the Bible Jesus preach. And I said yes to Jesus. I surrendered my life. And when I did, I just got a long, big list of things to start for God and to, uh, the things to stop for God. And the very first thing that I did is I broke up with my non-Christian girlfriend. So we can't date. And for eight long years in my 20s, I went on a long um, celibacy journey. So I'm not going to date. I'm going to be married to you, Jesus. So holy, right? I, I'm going to be married to you, and I just focused on you. Every single day, I read the Bible. And as I was attending church, somebody said, hey, you know what? You shouldn't watch R-rated movies. So I stopped that. So I started watching Disney ones until somebody else said, hey, that's the thing of the devil too. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> And then, and then um, I started listening to secular music, and they say, you can't listen to secular music. I'm like, why not? That's a thing of the devil, too. And so I stopped that, except the Bee Gees, because they're heavenly. Obviously, their harmony is angelic. And then so somebody told me, hey, if you're a Christian, you share God's word to people. So I went neighbor to neighbor sharing God's word, sharing about Jesus. Then they said, hey, if you're a Christian, then you go to missions. So I went and took a 22-hour flight to Russia. Somebody said, if you're a Christian, you're generous. So I uh, adopted, like, through uh, World Vision, a child. And I went so varsity on this that I decided to give up my journey of becoming an orthopedic surgeon and became a pastor. Now, I tell you all this because from the outside, people could say pretty much that I met the standard of Christianity, you know, becoming a serious Christian. And though I thought I was doing everything that God wanted me to do, I constantly felt that God was not happy with me. And to be honest, I wasn't happy with God. In fact, so much of my relationship with God was mechanical, and it wasn't joyful. It wasn't a relationship, but it felt like duty was upon me. You see, Christianity is not all about following rules. If that were the case, Christianity would be right in line with other rule-oriented religion like Buddhism and Islam, but Christianity is radically different. We're not Napa cabbage, we're kimchi. We're not religious, we are Christians. We are the redeemed. See, the redeemed people, again, are not following a set of rules, we're following a redeemer. 
and we're enjoying him. And in fact, let me give you a definition of the difference between religion versus the redeemed. The religious work for the approval of God, while the redeemed work from the approval of God. Did you, did you get that? The religious work for the approval of God, that you're working, you're obeying so that you could get God to like you, and the redeemed work from the full approval that God has given you. And the difference is just night and day. And my task for the remainder of our time is to help you understand and to compel you to know that the redeemed is far better than religious and that we are to work from the approval, not for it. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, would you please turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start from verse 9. And as you turn there, I, I, um, I always pray in my church that the Holy Spirit will preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. So I've been praying that all morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, this is the word of the Lord, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, and one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this passage shows us our problem and our pattern. Third, we'll end with our potential. First, our problem. If you're taking notes, we are all desperate for approval. You and I, every single person in this room, we're more desperate for approval than we realize. We see this in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Say righteous. righteous. Awesome. Righteous. Right off the bat, this is a universal problem in all of us. It is found in this word righteous. Now, the culture doesn't use this word righteous very much at all um, anymore. But the word righteous in the Bible has a connotation of being approved or being accepted. And the reality is you and I love being approved. The reality is you and I long to be accepted. And this is the reason why we love sappy rom-com movies. This is why we love that story when that ugly duckling becomes a prom queen or that hero movie where the zero becomes hero in sports. This is the reason why we love the, you know, the boy from the island that makes it on the mainland. We love that, right? Why? Because maybe if they can make it, we can make it too. That maybe if they are accepted, then we are also accepted. That maybe if they represent the island, then we become somebody ourselves. And this is the same reason why you and I hate to be criticized. You know the criticism that comes to you, man, we're allergic to it. The reason is, it's because we want to be approved. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And this is an inner longing that we all have. And in this parable, the Pharisee is deeply concerned with moral righteousness, not because he wants to please God, but because he wanted this deep approval. 
You see, theological word here is righteousness. You know what the psychological word here is? Self-esteem. You and I want self-esteem. We want to be esteemed. So he's starving for esteem. So he starts dishing out encouragements to himself, right? He says, thank you that I'm not like other men because I tithe and I fast and I'm not an adulterer like this fool. See, he's thirsting for affirmation. One time I saw this shirt I want to show you just on the screen here. This T-shirt, somebody was wearing it. She was passing me by it, and I saw it. I'm like, you are enough. And I looked at that shirt. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm enough. Yes, I am. And there are words around it like, you know, you're brave. You know, you're strong. You're smart. You're kind. And I was like, yes, I am. And she has no idea who I am, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm going to receive this encouragement anyway. And it was like I was receiving this, I am enough, I am enough. And strangely, as I was being encouraged, I was like, that's so encouraging and dumb. That's so stupid. Why? Because who is she? I don't know. Does she know me? No. But here I am taking this ambiguous encouragement that she's wearing this T-shirt of, and I'm being encouraged by it. She doesn't know me. She doesn't know how chicken I am. She doesn't know how unrighteous I am. She doesn't know how unfaithful I am. And yet these words are like affirming me. And this is how desperate we are for encouragement. We'll take somebody walking on a piece of, you know, a T-shirt saying, you are enough. Like, I am enough. Godly, I am enough. And we'll be encouraged. And this is the reason why young people are seeking popularity. Because their self-esteem. This is why young adults travel a lot for experiences. Why? For self-esteem, to say, I am somebody. I want to experience this thing. I want to tell other people. This is why parents love having their kids be model kids because you're like, wow, you're a great parent. I love this. And then you get into like the midlife crisis where, you know, you dream about buying that really nice car so that that one day when you stop at a red light and somebody looks to you and they say, man, this guy must be somebody special. That's what you want. And this is the reason why, contra uh, contrasting to that example, is why we don't want to be sitting in a minivan, you know, in the red light, and somebody looking at you and say, man, that dude must be a loser. Like, we don't want that. Why? Because it's the esteem, right? This is, we want the esteem. We're desperate for esteem. And this is why um, Botox is Botox. Do you know that in America, $18 billion is spent annually on plastic surgery each year? You and I are desperate for approval. You and I are desperate for somebody from the outside to tell us, you're enough, you're approved, you're great, you're smart. Man, you have such great kids, which means you are such a great parent. And our problem is that we have this deep longing for approval, and we're willing to seek anywhere for it. Then what's our pattern? What do we do? Well, here's the pattern. We take then an outside approach in, outside in approach. Let me explain to you what that means. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Jesus says, and he gives this example, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, here it is. The religious people take an outside-in approach, and when you do, you start drawing out some characteristics in you that are very familiar to religious people. Here's the first one if you're taking notes. Religion promotes superficiality. You become superficial. 
Let me give you an example. Notice this Pharisee's understanding of sin is completely external, right? It's completely focused on the outer behavior. He says, I don't steal, I tithe, you know, I'm faithful to my wife. It's all external. But notice he never looks in himself. He never says, here's my inner quality. No, he only talks about the outer quality. He doesn't say, Lord, I thank you that my heart is changing. Lord, I thank you that my prejudice is going away, that I'm able to love my enemy more this year than last. He doesn't say anything like that. No, he talks about all these things that are only external. And here's the reason why, could I tell you why religious people are all about the externals rather than the internals? Because the externals are things that you could witness and you could get credit for. Internal, you can't. You see, if I'm loving my enemy, you won't know that. But if I'm out there praying out loud or if I'm out there giving money or seeming generous, you know, those are all external behaviors. And this is why religious people love external behaviors instead of internal behaviors. And for the record, I struggle with this all the time. Now, if my wife was sitting here, she's going to come second service, she's going to say, amen. And what she's going to amen is, man, I don't do dishes very often, but when I do, I wait until it gets piled up, <laughs> piled up to the sky. And now here it comes, Ryan with his cape. I'm like, I will serve you, my wife, and I will do the whole pile. And when somebody comes to try to help me, I'm like, no, no, don't help me. Don't help me because I got to finish. I got to do this for my wife. Here's the reason why I do that. God forbid somebody help me so that they take the credit too. I want all the credit for myself. And this is the reason why, you know, Asians fight for the bill. Like, I want the credit. They're not even being generous. I'm, I want the credit. You, man, I have some Howleys in, in my circle of friends. Most of our churches are Howleys. And they, they, I'll buy them a meal, and this is what they'll say. They're, they're so kind to say, hey, can I cover tip? I'm like, heck no. You ain't covering my tip. Why? It's not because I'm generous. It's because I want the credit. I want the credit so desperately. This is life of superficiality. But religion, religious also, religion also promotes arrogance. Would you look at verse 11 again? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, I thank God that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Now notice here, he's looking down on people. He's looking down on everybody. Look, at, at the same time, he's elevating himself. And he says, look, I don't steal because the Bible says so. I don't cheat because the Bible says so. Uh, I, I tithe because the Bible says so. But did you catch the fourth one here? He says, I fast twice a week. Did you know that the Bible doesn't say that? I mean, he's a Pharisee, so he follows the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law tells you that in Yom Kippur, once a year, you're, you're to fast. Only once a year. But this guy says, no, I don't fast once a year. I don't even fast once a week. I fast twice a week. And what he's saying by that is he's saying, oh, we're not different. I'm actually better than you. I'm just better than you. I'm a better human being than you. And this prompts arrogance. And this is a typical outside-in approach. This is how we gain acceptance, approval, and righteousness. We start on the outside and say, if I live a good life, I know that God's going to owe me. And I know this because many of us believe that conversely, that if we live a bad life, then God's going to punish me. And we think this, that he won't approve your sin. And by the way, God does not approve your sin. God hates your sin. God hates my sin. But if you are a Christian today, 
you know deeply, and I know this is a gospel-centered church, which means I know that you know that you are today not approved by your external deeds. Amen? You are only approved by the life that you didn't live. That is the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you are, you are approved by the life that's been given to you for credit. It wasn't from you, but it was for you. It was an outside life that was given to you. But religious people take all that righteousness and they wear it on a shirt and they actually try to live it out, try to gain people in power. Do you know why? Karl Marx, actually Michael Foucault, the French philosopher, they said this. They both said it in, in a very similar quote. They said, religious people use morality to gain power over others and whereby you gain a self. That's what they say. See, we, we use morals to gain power and prestige so that we could thumb our noses down at other people. And one of the worst things that Christians do, and we often act like religious people, is that we love calling out other people's sin. We love it. And we do this subtly, and sometimes we do it really plainly, and we do it on social media. And we're like just throwing it out there. And what's interesting is that the difference between a Christian and a religious person is this. A Christian hates their sin more than other people's sin, whereas religious people love, hate other people's sins more than their sins. See? And if you hate your sin more than other people's sin, on social media, you will gladly repent of your own sins first because you hate it. You hate sin. You know, Christians don't just repent. Christians actually hate the sin that they are repenting of. See, that's the nature of Christianity, and they know that they're accepted. For religious people, they hate other people's sin far more than, um, they, they almost like the brand of sin that they are into. And this is why C.S. Lewis once said this. He says, a moderately bad man, a moderately bad man knows that he's not a very good person, but a thoroughly bad man thinks they're all right. Do you see? You know, you ask Hitler, hey, are you a, are you a bad man? He's like, no. You ask Abraham Lincoln, are you a bad man? He's like, yeah, I'm a very bad man. See, a Christian knows that you're very bad, that you're wretched sinner. A religious person thinks they're all right. And that's how they gain a self. This is how they gain power. This is how they gain arrogance. Is that you? By the way, are you accustomed to judging others instead of hating your own sin? If that's you today, I just want to let you know your religion is showing. Your religion is coming out, is seeping out, and you need to be in the brine of grace this morning. Here's the third thing. Religion promotes self-centeredness. And this is very natural. We see this in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You know, whenever you start a prayer like, I thank you, Lord, you would think that he's going to talk about God, <laughs> you know? But he's like, I thank you, Lord, and that's the last time he mentions God. In fact, from that point, he starts talking about himself, saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm awesome, that I have all these great attributes about me. And that shows that he's not necessarily God-centered, but he's very self-centered, that he's not adoring God in this prayer. He's adoring himself. He's very self-centered. Now, do you see how the Bible addresses this, in particular the Gospels? It's fascinating because you notice 
The gospel, in this case in Luke 18, pits up a good guy versus a bad guy, right? The Pharisee is the good guy, and then this tax collector is the bad guy. And the Bible often does that. Do you remember Luke 15, the prodigal son? That is a story of a good guy versus a bad guy. The bad guy is the prodigal that took all of his dad's inheritance and spent it on, you know, terrible living, prostitution, and all that, and comes back. And the good guy, the son who stays back and obeys his dad, who's redeemed the prodigal, who is condemned, who's rebuked the older son. You know, in Luke 7, there's another story where there's a there's a dude in this community, a great guy, an upstanding guy named Simeon, Simon. And Simon was an upstanding dude, and he's compared and he's pitted up against a woman, a prostitute, who pours oil on Jesus' feet. Do you remember who's redeemed? There's a prostitute. Who is rebuked? Simon. In this case, the same thing happens. In Luke 18, you find a good dude. I know Pharisees get a bad name, but at the end of the day, you know, he's giving 10% of his income away, something that... A lot of us are not willing to do, but he does it because he's generous, that he's not an adulterer. He's faithful to his wife. He's a good dude. On the other hand, the tax collector is a bad dude. You realize who these guys were? Think about like the Jewish collaborators in the Nazi regime during World War II, right? They're the the bullies. They're They're the gangsters. They're the shakedown artists, you know? This guy was a terrible person. He was robbing from his own people. So here's a good man, and here's a bad man. And in this story, Jesus redeems the bad guy. And why not the good guy? Well, I'll tell you why. There are two ways to reject God's grace. One is to disobey all of his ways and his rules. And the other way is to keep all of his rules, but keep it not for his glory and his pleasure, but so that you can make much of yourself. And eventually look at God and say, you see, I obeyed all these rules, and because of that, now you owe me. You're bartering with God. You're making a deal with God. You're making much of yourself. In both situations, they're lost, but the difference is the bad guy knows, right, that he's rejecting God. But the good person, they don't know. They don't know. Uh, Therefore, the lack of awareness puts that good person in a worse situation. You see, the bad person sees their need for a savior, but the good person only turns to the bad guy and says, man, you need a savior. Not me, though, because I'm a good person. That's why they're not redeemed. And this is why it is so dangerous to be religious, because religious people don't know that they're being religious. That's the problem. So here's the question. I'm going to land with this. How could you and I live as the redeemed? What's our potential here? How could you and I live as the redeemed? Well, the redeemed take an inside-out approach. Not an outside-in, but an inside-out. Let's look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I want you to see here, friends, um, how this tax collector finds approval. He says, God, be merciful to me. Say merciful. Merciful. One more time. Say merciful. Merciful. This is a key word here in the Bible. And I'm going to point to it. We're just going to get into a little Bible study right now. I was studying this passage this week. 
And, and I noticed that when the tax collector says the word mercy or merciful, there's a plain Greek word here for merciful, right? That is the word elios, but it's not used here. In fact, the word that is used here is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. It's a very rare word. In fact, elios, which is compassion, Jesus be compassionate to me, is not what he says, but it's a very common thing to say. In fact, in Luke, in actually, actually later in this passage, in this chapter, a blind man comes up and says, Jesus, have mercy or Elias on me. He uses that typical word, but here it's not the word Elias, it is the word Hilasterion. Hilasterion is only mentioned one other time in the New Testament. It's not have mercy or compassion on me, it means have uh, atonement for me. It means, please, Lord, not have compassion on me or let me off the hook, but it means, Lord, please pay for my sin. Make a payment for my sin. That's what it means. Now, I'll tell you where you find this in the Old Testament. When you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament writing, you know, in the temple where the Holy of Holy was, remember what was there? It rested the Ark of the Covenant, right, where God's Shekinah glory dwelt there. And nobody could go in anytime. In fact, um, because it was the Holy of Holies, you couldn't go in because it was fatal. Why? Because in the Ark was stored the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the Mount Sinai, right? And so lest you go and be tempted and to be scrutinized by the Ten Commandments, and you don't go. But the only time you went was the high priest actually went during Yom Kippur once a year. The high priest, not any old priest, but the highest priest would go in and make atonement. Now, on the Ark of the Covenant, there was a plate, a gold plate on top, where actually the angels were there, and there was made sacrifices, the atonement for sins. Guess what that mercy seat is called? Hilasterion. It's the mercy seat. It's the place where atonement was made. Now, I want to bring you back to the New Testament again. The word used one only other time in the entire New Testament is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And it reads like this. It says, therefore, Jesus Christ became merciful, and he became the faithful high priest in the service of God, you see, in the temple, to make propitiation, which is the word hilasterion, for the sins of his people. This was exactly what the tax collector is saying. He's not saying, Lord, give me a break. He's not saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Just be nice to me. Let me get a pass. That's not what he's saying. Because he knew that he was a wretched sinner and he needed covering. He needed payment. He said, where am I going to get this approval? Where am I going to get this righteousness? Where am I going to get it from? Somebody has to pay is what he was saying. So how did he get it? How did he get this righteousness from all of his sins? I'll tell you how. You know, when Jesus was entering his public ministry, one of the first people that he went to go see is John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in the Jordan. He came and said, oh, Jesus, it's you. And John, he says, John, it's me. And he goes, Jesus, you need to baptize me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. John, you need to baptize me. And John's like, I can't baptize you. You're Jesus. You know, yeah, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, listen, John, you need to baptize me. And then says something 
so fascinating that changed my life. Jesus says, John, you need to baptize me for I must fulfill all righteousness. I must fulfill all righteousness. And what that means is, have you ever wondered why Jesus lived 33 years? I mean, why didn't he just forgive you from heaven? Why did he come down and live this long 33 years of his life, doing all the right things, enduring the cross? Why did he do all that? Why did he even get baptized? I mean, he was the Lord. Why did he get baptized? Why did he tell John, John, you need to baptize me? I'll tell you why. Because he's fulfilling all righteousness that we refuse to, and that one day, that righteousness will be credited unto the tax collector and to you and to me. And though we did not live this life, it's given to us as if we had lived this life. And that is the redemptive nature of God's grace and his gospel. And you no longer approve on the basis of what you do and your obedience and how kind you are, how many times you come to church, it does not matter. You are only approved by the life that you refuse to live and Christ was glad to live. He lived that life for you and he gave you that credit. And unto that credit forever now, you and I are fully approved and you and I will never ever have to wonder ever if God accepts us. Because the reality is when we say by grace, yes, Lord, we accept you, we embrace you, we receive your grace, we're essentially saying we finally know once and forever, forever and ever and ever, even in our deepest sin, that we are approved by God, not by our life, not by our choices, but because the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. This is the reality of the gospel. And this, what this means is you don't have to wait until the end of your life to wonder, did I live a good enough life like all the other religions that are outside in religions? The gospel says, Jesus lived that life for you. And if you put your faith in him today, it doesn't matter where you are in life, he will give you the verdict that will never change on you. And this leads you to obey God. You see, this is an inside-out sub because if you know that this is true, that you don't have to gain his favor, you don't have to gain your esteem, that you have it all. Listen, you don't need any other approval in this world You'll just simply then do it out of joy. You'll do it out of joy, not a burden. And you will be motivated not to get anything from God because you have everything already in God. You already have everything. What else do you need? And if God's approval today is not enough for you, could I just share with you that ain't no approval from this world is going to be enough for you. It's not going to be enough. You're always going to be thirsting for approval. Christianity is not obeying God for approval, but it's loving God from his approval. Jerry Bridges summarizes his thought really well. He says this, my observation of modern Christianity is that most of us tend to base our relationship with God on our performance instead of his grace. And if we perform well, whatever well is in our opinion, then we expect God to bless us. And if we haven't done so well, then our expectations are reduced accordingly. In this sense, we live by works rather than by grace. We are saved by grace. We acknowledge that. But we are living by the sweat of our own performance. We give lip service to the grace of God, but our unspoken motto is, God helps those who help themselves. The realization that my daily relationship with God is based 
on the infinite merit of Christ instead of my own performance is a very freeing and joy, joyful experience. Joyous experience. And I like to close just by giving you a, a, an example of God's approval. In Deuteronomy 7, God says this. God says, and it's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you're more numerous than other people's. Oh, it's there. Your team is awesome. So the Lord did not set his affection on you. He didn't choose you because you were awesome, because you were in meritocracy. You, it's not because you deserved it. For you were the fewest of all peoples, meaning you and I were sinful. But now pay attention to why he chose you then, because the Lord loved you and that he redeemed you from the land of slavery. Now, this is a circular reasoning if you saw that. It's like, the Lord loved you. Why? Why'd you love me, Lord? Huh? Because I, I tithe, because I come to church, I'm in community groups. I'm like, why do you love me? He says, the Lord loved you because he loved you. <laughs> Did you hear that? You're like, and could I tell you, that is the kind of grace you and I need so desperately today. That kind of grounding assurance from God. Why? Well, let me give you an example of this. One of my favorite questions my daughter asks is this. Daddy, why do you love me? It's a trap. <laughs> Can I just tell you it's a trap? Why do you love me? And she wants me to just riddle off all these wonderful qualities about her, and she'll be so encouraged by that. Why do you love me? Now, imagine if I said this. Baby girl, I love you because you are a good dancer. And you always win. You win first place all the time. And I love you because you always obey. And you never complain, unlike your brothers. And that your room is always clean. And you're always in shape. You're always in shape. You're constantly working out. And you're getting A's in school. You only get A's. And that's why I love you. It sounds like an Asian dad, right? You're not a Bijan or a Cishan. You're Asian. You know? B's make honey, A's make money, right? You know, it's all the, it's terrible. Now, could you imagine my, my, my daughter hearing that for the rest of her life? You know, is that approval? That's radical insecurity. She'll grow up radical, radically insecure. But what if she heard this instead? I love you because I was made to love you. And you were made to be loved by me. And no matter what you do, no matter what your room looks like, no matter where you place and dance, no matter how many times we fight, no matter how many times you cheat, no matter if you get that B, no matter if you do well in school, no matter how much you hate mom and dad, no matter if you go to jail, no matter if you're pregnant, no matter if you have a sex change, no matter what, daddy was made to. And your deepest of sin, and this is one of my favorite things I do with my daughter, is that when I catch her in sin, I tell her, honey, if a thousand girls came to my door right now and said, would you adopt me? I would still choose you. I will always choose you because I was made to love you no matter what. 
You see, if this is the kind of love that my daughter receives every single day, which isn't, because I'm a wretched sinner, but if this is what the love that she receives and she does from her heavenly father, then it's not that you seek his approval. It's not you live for anything else but from his approval. And your life to want to obey God is joyous and glad because you want to worship a God like that. You want to serve a God like that. You'll look at a God like that and like, you mean I'll do, I have everything that I ever need? That no matter how much I obey, you're not going to bless me even more, but I have all the blessings up front. Some Christians will say this, then you would not have any motivation to actually be righteous or obey, right? And John Bunyan, long, long time ago, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, once replied for those people, if, if people really see that Christ's approval was already given to them by grace, then they'll do whatever he wants. See, if that is your heavenly father, and he is, that he fully approves of you, not because of your obedience, but because of Christ's obedience, then you'll do whatever he wants. And that's when you become from religious to the redeemed. That's when you become a Napa cabbage to a kimchi. <laughs> that's when you become a people of the old temple to the people of the church. And I pray the Harbor Church will be a church where not only we will bring people who need that restoring, but that we are the people of the redeemed and that we worship God and obey God out of our gladness from inside out, not outside in. Let's pray. Christ, I, I even sense in this morning that there are people here, much like me, who are inclined to just work for your favor when we realize that through the gospel we have all the favor that we ever need or want from you, that you've already chosen us. Why? Not because of our merit, but because you love us. Father, there are many things that we do for our parents, recognizing how they served us, and we're willing to do some radical things. And yet you are the perfect parent, and you've given us our, your full approval through your son, Jesus. Now we want to be glad in serving you. And there's some people in this room that have never, ever realized that they work for approval through you rather than from approval by your son. So I pray that you would just awaken our hearts for that. And to your glory, to your end, that, that you would show us how glorious you are, that you have chosen us because you loved us, not because we're lovely. And Lord, I pray that that would just encourage us to live a radical life for you, a radical Christian life for you. You are the only one that is worthy of this kind of worship. And I pray that the whole island of Oahu and Hawaii will wake up to this reality. And it only requires us to say yes to the brine of grace, that we receive you, we receive and enjoy the Redeemer and all that he has for us. Help us to enjoy you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.